Hello, and welcome again to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a professor at George Mason University's uh, Antonin Scalia Law School, and I'm joined, as always, by my indefatigable friend, uh, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you today? Well, I'm fine. Uh, given the state of the world, I'm feeling actually pretty good. Well, Richard, these days we're thinking a lot about the state of the court, among other things. The court just came back into session a few weeks ago. It's already hearing some significant hot-button cases. But in the late summer, a brief was filed in the court that attracted a lot of attention, in part because it was filed by a group of United States senators led by Shell Whitehouse, but also in part because of what the brief said, not just who the brief was written by, but what the brief said. And I'm just going to quote to you the last paragraph of this brief. It's in a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus City of New York. Okay, here's the last paragraph. The Supreme Court is not well, and the people know it. Perhaps the, the court can heal itself before the public demands that it be, quote, restructured, restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics, particularly on the in urgent issue of gun control. A nation desperately needs it to heal. So that's basically Sheldon Whitehouse and a number of other senators threatening the court that it will lose its legitimacy if it decides a case involving gun regulation. Did you see this brief when it came out? And if so, what was your reaction? Well, I took a deep breath and I said, I'm Mr. Whitehouse is known for going over the top. And I think he's managed to do that in spades in this particular case. Um, I don't like implicit threats with respect to the court. Um, I think it's very dangerous no matter where they come from. But the other point that sort of bothers me so much is the utterly unsupported certitude that he and his colleagues bring on this particular issue. Gun control is one of the most complicated questions that you could possibly we mentioned, and there's a large number of disputes about whether or not this stuff is effective or not. Uh, probably the most vociferous um, person on this issue has been John Lott over the last 20 or so years. John has a habit from time to time of putting his foot into his mouth, but if you actually go back and read some of the statistics that he marshals and start to look at some of the arguments that he makes, it turns out that there's got to be a lot of pause before you start to move. And let me just mention a couple of the kinds of problems that you have. One is that um, if you reduce the number of guns, that may sound to be presumptively good, but if you change the ratio of the number of guns in the hands of good people to the number of guns in the hands of bad people, uh, so that there are more bad people having guns, given that the good people comply with the law, uh, it's likely to create an increase in the level of crime. Uh, so you have to get the guns out of the right hand. And, and that's not going to be necessarily the case if you try to take it away from NRA members, many of whom have actually had serious training in guns, and none of whom have committed criminal offenses. A second point that we know about gun control is that it doesn't work. When you really have a huge amount of difficulty on the ground, the single most important thing to do is to have a response that takes place within 5, 10, 15 seconds after it starts. Most of the damage is done in the first one or two minutes of these kinds of outbursts. If there's nobody on the ground who has guns and you have to marshal somebody from a distance away, it's too little too late. And so I've long taken the position uh, that you need to have people who know how to use these guns in a position where they can defend folks. That means perhaps having off-duty officers carry guns with them or a whole variety of other situations so that you don't have a situation of a killing field inside a skill school because they aren't there. Well, I start thinking about these kinds of complications and I say to myself, why are they so absolutely positive that everything they do is going to be good?
Then I start looking at the Constitution, and I have mixed emotions on that. I do not think that Heller was rightly decided. I've long said that I did not think that the uh, uh, Second Amendment had the reach that they thought that it did. Uh, so I'm prepared to argue on the other side. Uh, but it is not, I think, the case that one should say, oh, my heavens, uh, since you disagree with Heller and the other kinds of decisions, uh, what we have to do is to threaten to pack the court so that they'll come out our way. If every group did this on every issue that they started to care about, uh, the entire institutional structure would come apart. We have a very tenuous kind of social control, very tenuous set of civic institutions. And I think Mr. Whitehouse did something to try to stable, destabilize them. And I think for that, he deserves the strongest of all possible censures. He is just wrong to make that kind of threat in that kind of manner. So now, says I. Well, let me put my cards on the table. When it, sure. comes, when it comes to Senator Whitehouse, uh, I've, I'm already on the record of being you know, in an, an argument, so to speak, with him. He has some pretty paranoid theories about uh, the program I run at George Mason's Law School. I run a program called the Seaboy and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, which was founded by uh, your friend and my friend, uh, now Judge Naomi Rao. And Senator Whitehouse has accused our program of being basically a, a dark money slush fund to the tune of something like $28 million or something uh, from the, the Koch Foundation. And it's it's the usual, I, I've written on this at length about, about how wrong he is about these things. But setting, so setting my own sort of personal bias against Senator Whitehouse aside, this was a striking brief in part because I guess the response is, well, physician, heal thyself. Uh, the, the United States Senate seems to be the last institution that ought to be casting aspersions on other institutions in government. But set, even setting that aside, the idea that United States senators would basically try to to preemptively delegitimize the court just for hearing issues that the, these senators don't want the court to intervene in strikes me as sort of the worst symptoms of where we are right now as a country and as a culture attacking institutions just for doing their job, attacking institutions because you worry they might go against your interests. Um, that these days we need to build up institutions more than break them down. And ironically, Sheldon Whitehouse and others are not exactly hesitant to criticize President Trump when they see him as undermining institutions and so on. But obviously White House and the others are not the only ones who are criticizing the court right now delegitimizing it or declaring it illegitimate. There's this, I, I, I think there's a burgeoning debate around the court over what it means for the court to have legitimacy in, at, at all. Chief Justice Roberts clearly feels the political uh, heat surrounding the court. He gave a speech not long after this brief came out, um, or at least around the same time. He gave a talk up in, I believe, New York, where he criticized those who were trying to politicize the court, trying to cast the court's decisions in, in political terms. And he's clearly trying to push back in some ways against this. But I guess my question, Richard, for you is, how do you, when you think about an issue like judicial legitimacy, uh, how, would you how would you define that? What, what makes the court legitimate and what makes the court legitimate in the eyes of the people? 
Well, I mean, I think the two questions are heavily interrelated, and nobody has ever given a strong account of what legitimacy is. I think it's easier to say what illegitimacy is when you find a widespread discontent with the way in which organizations have gone and claims of of bias on the one hand or corruption on the other. Uh, Those things will undermine legitimacy. I think it should not undermine the legitimacy of any institution that they come out with decisions that happen to be different from those which you have. And I think it would be a real mistake to say that a court is illegitimate when it turns out that there is some deep division about the way in which certain central issues ought to be undertaken. I mean, I think that it's laudable that the chief justice has tried so hard to defend the court against various criticisms. But I think, in effect, the problem of legitimacy is something that he and nobody else can control for the following very simple reason. The level of polarization in American politics today is far greater than it's ever been at any time. As best I can tell, the commonplace saying is true, which is there's no Democrat who is to the right of any Republican and there's no Republican who's to the left of any Democrat. Uh, So there's a complete fissure and the gap between the two parties gets larger and larger. It gets intensified by the impeachment stuff. It got intensified by Russiagate and so forth. And if it turns out that you have people who are so polarized, anything time the court come down one way or another, the disadvantaged person, the aggrieved parties, are going to come back and attack its kind of legitimacy, which is what it is that White House has done. So I don't know how you could preserve the uh, legitimacy of any kind of institution if they're forced to make hardline decisions one way or the other uh, when you have this enormous dispersion of, of views. And you can see this, I think, in the presidential election, wholly put aside whatever you think about Donald Trump's character. And just look at the kind of domestic reforms that he has been in favor of and has implemented and the kinds of domestic reforms that have done by the likes of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And I mean, there's just absolutely no overlap or touches between the two of them. And so the sides tend to gear up. And what you see happening in the political arena is going to happen inside the judicial arena as well. So unless there's some way in which the, you know, the country can refer to the kind of Eisenhower consensus of the 1950s, a basically free market organization with some kind of a welfare and social net, uh, reluctant but nonetheless truthful acceptance of many of the fundamental New Deal reforms. These are not the positions that I would take intellectually, uh, but I think it's extremely important to recognize that each of us cannot have our hand-tutored and hand-calibrated constitution. And if we could find our way to get ourselves something back to the sort of uh, the center on those two issues, it would go an enormously long way to make things better. But as best I can see, we are moving in exactly in the opposite kind of direction. There's much more shrill talk on both sides, a lot of absolute dissolutions that don't make a lot of bit of sense. And I think that this general political climate is going to wash over the court and make its task ever more difficult than it has been. I think by and large, um, if you actually look at its performance, there are decisions that I disagree with, but there have not been any that I regard as true stunners. I don't think of this court as being filled with revolutionaries, but I do think it's a court which has a commendable difference of opinion. I mean, going from Thomas on the right to Sotomayor on the left, there's a lot of room in between. Uh, I just don't see how you're going to be able to avoid the charges, given the fact that people actually have fundamentally different views about the way in which government is organized. So what you try to do is to defend the institutions, but you recognize that the attacks are going to continue to come. And with every controversial decision, there'll be a greater intensity. When I posed the question, I phrased it in terms of both the court's legitimacy and the way the court's legitimacy is perceived by the people at large. And you said, you know, the two issues are 
deeply related, and I think they are. I do think it is always worthwhile to, to think about them separately as well, right? The, the, the abstract or theoretical justifications for the court's legitimacy and the, the court legitimately going about its work are not necessarily what's going to make it seem legitimate in the eyes of the people at a given moment in time. And I think oftentimes we just, we meaning uh, me and and I, I think a lot of conservatives, we, we, we think about, say, Justice Scalia's dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where he warned that the court kept getting involved in political issues or, or politicizing issues, making political value judgments, constitutional law, that that would uh, increasingly uh, spur the people to rise up and criticize the court and complicate confirmation hearings and so on. And that's that might be true, but on the other hand, the people might might like what the court's doing, even when the court is interjecting its value judgments uh, into constitutional law in a way that might we might not see as theoretically legitimate. So I try to keep these two issues separate. But then again, if you go back to the very beginning, Federalist seventy eight, Hamilton he doesn't I don't think he uses the word legitimacy, but he talks a lot about what would delegitimize the court in the eyes of the people. He says at one point, if the court were to strike down laws on a pretense that the law, the statute is repugnant to the Constitution, uh, then that would undermine the court's legitimacy. But I think also important is that while Hamilton says that the courts have neither force nor will but merely judgment and they just interpret the law, he did, I think, tee up a pretty deferential standard of review, right? where he said only when there's an irreconcilable variance between a statute and the Constitution, uh, only then should you strike down the statute, implying when he says irreconcilable variance, that there's such a thing as a reconcilable variance that can and should be reconciled without striking down the statute. He elsewhere talks about a fair construction, implying the difference between a, a fair construction that might save a law and an unfair construction that goes too far in trying to save a law. And so for me, I think a key to judicial legitimacy, especially in a, in a Republican constitution, is a deferential standard of review that gives the benefit of the doubt to the democratically uh, enacted uh, laws and statutes and only strikes down statutes when it's absolutely necessary. I don't know that it goes as far, I'd go as far as the the sort of the Thayer theory of, of constitutional law that only the most egregious errors should be struck down. But I do think that the, that the tie ought to go to judicial restraint and that seems to be an, an ongoing debate with among conservatives these days, whether it's a de debate between judicial restraint and so-called judicial engagement or the sort of tensions between, say, the jurisprudence of a Justice Thomas versus the jurisprudence of a, of a Chief Justice Roberts. I mean, do, does, that, does that convince you at all or do you think I'm being – I'm sort of softballing or softpedaling what the court ought to do? I think in effect that it's – an appealing position, but it's also a dangerous position. This is constant tension as to whether you're going too far or too little. Uh, but if you take what you had said quite literally and assume that you're going to use a kind of a, a respectable rational basis test across the board, you have to think of what branches of current constitutional law you're going to undo and whether or not you're content with it. So intermediate scrutiny seems to be actually a little bit higher than what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And strict scrutiny seems to be far higher than what you're talking about. 
so when you start talking about some of the really hot button issues, for example, on freedom of speech, um, I think in effect the relatively strict scrutiny standard given to political protest before the government could start to strike it down is probably a pretty welcome kind of a situation. And it turns out that you have to uh, really kind of figure out what you're going to do in order to make this thing work. Some cases get it right, some cases get it wrong. Uh, but the position I take is is more substantively bound than the one that you've taken, which is more institutionally bound. My view is that to the extent that you find statutes that seem to be trying to work within the broad classical liberal tradition that I think represents the basic theory of the framers, uh, you ought to sustain them to the extent that you start to see interventions that go in exactly the opposite direction and try to upset those uh, boundary lines between private and the public use of force, you ought to go the other way. So the First Amendment cases, it seems to me, should be rightly decided. Um, I would be reluctant, for example, to overturn New York Times against Sullivan, and so as to say that the state of Alabama could wipe out the New York Times by a series of preposterous defamation suits, first brought by Mr. Sullivan and then by lots of other people if that one had succeeded. Uh, take another area, one of the great successes of the American Constitution is surely illegitimate in some sense. It's the whole stuff having to do with the Dormant Commerce Clause, which essentially was the judicial effort to create more or less a nationwide free trade zone and to stop balkanization. Uh, the textual authority for that is relatively thin and skinny. Uh, yet, on the other hand, if we started to reverse that and started to allow the balkanization to take place, it would be a pipe dream to assume that Congress um, would be able to get together in some coherent fashion to override those kinds of limitations. So I really don't want to think I'd move there. And when you get to economic liberties, which has always been my bugbear, um, I believe that a much higher level of scrutiny is sustainable. In fact, I thought that the whole Lochner line of cases trying to figure out when it was that limitations on contractual freedom were justified in the name of health and safety were a pretty good success. And one of the things I like to remind people is when those decisions were in place and the progressives were on the outs, uh, we managed to have the most unparalleled growth in economic history and social welfare and human well-being in the entire history of the universe. 1870 to 1940 was a period of mainly huge positive transformations in the lives of ordinary individuals brought about by private individuals, brought about by private initiatives, brought about by competitive markets. And so what I do is I say that in the economic area, show me a regulation that stifles monopoly, and I'll give it very respectful consideration. Show me a regulation that stifles competition, and I will essentially try to subject that to much higher scrutiny. So I don't agree with you. Uh, on this thing entirely because I think you have to have a much more substantive basis for these judgments and to look at the actual text of the Constitution, the protections on religious liberty, on freedom of contract, or at least of the obligation of contract, private property, liberty and due process, and so forth. So I have a slightly different view on that particular issue. I think you can maintain legitimacy in the court if the kinds of things that you strike down are widely understood to be the product of bias and intrigue, which much of this economic stuff really turns out to be. Uh, so uh, we're not 100% on that, uh, but at least we will have a reasonable disagreement. Huh. Well, one of the reasons – oh, I'm glad you mentioned economic liberty because one of the reasons I'm thinking about this this week is not just because of that, that brief from last summer, but because – at the Scalia Law School, I teach a semester-long seminar on Scalia and some of the debates he had with progressives and conservatives alike. And next week is a, a week where I assign a, a few essays by Justice Thomas 
from before he was on the Supreme Court. And among other things, uh, I assign the debate that you had with Scalia in 1984, uh, a debate titled Economic Liberties and the Judiciary. It was published in the Cato Journal in 1985. It's, it's still available as a PDF online on Cato, on Cato's website. Scalia wrote an essay, or gave a talk and became an essay called Economic Affairs as Human Affairs, where he was very skeptical of the of, of basically the Lochnerian approach of, of, of protecting economic liberty through things like the Fifth and Fourteenth or Ninth Amendments. He warned about empowering judges to recognize uh, economic rights because they might not they might not recognize the right economic rights, and he also warned that this approach would just energize judges to make the same sorts of mistakes that he saw the court the Supreme Court making in, in the Warren era and at other times. You responded uh, with an essay called Judicial Review, Reckoning on Two Kinds of Error. I would love it, Richard, if you could just explain a little bit about that debate, how it came about, and what the, the crux of your disagreement with, with Scalia was. Well, I will give you the secret history of the debate. It actually wasn't a debate. Uh, what happened is there was a uh, conference organized by the Cato interest and Justice Scalia, the new boy in town, just on the uh, Court of Appeals for a couple of years. I think he came there in 1982, and this was 1984, was to give the keynote address. I was supposed to be on the first panel with a man named Peter Aronson, long deceased, but a wonderful fellow. And I was sitting there saying, why am I here? And what am I supposed to be doing? And so I sat around and I, and finally I listened to Scalia's talk. And I said, I I don't know what my panel's supposed to be about, but I'm not going to talk about what my panel's supposed to be about. I'm going to talk about what I thought was wrong with respect to what it was that Justice Scalia said. And the title that was put on this, um, uh, reckoning on two kinds of errors is a pretty accurate way of trying to explain what it was that I thought with him. Uh, the first thing is I think everybody has to agree that uh, the level of judicial performance that you see with respect to these issues is highly uneven. Uh, there are some opinions which are truly inspiring and there are other opinions which are god-awful terrible one kind or another. Um, uh, but on the other hand, when you start looking at the legislative performance, you could ex make exactly the same kind of statement. And so what you're trying to do is to figure out an error minimization statute for bad laws that involves both the court and the judiciary on the one side and the legislature, the Congress and the president sitting there on the other. And Scalia's position was the court should essentially be deference, at which point when you have that degree of deference, the kind of political intrigue that will start to rise up on the other side will become deeply intense. And if you therefore have no check, you're going to get a very high level of error on one side, too much regulation. On the other hand, courts can't pass statutes, but they can strike them down. And if, in fact, you do that in a sensible way, uh, what will happen is it may be that you'll introduce some judicial error at a lower level, perhaps, than you, the uh, political error that are going to be made by the legislative branches. More importantly, if, in fact, you actually believe that there's a theory behind the Constitution, as I just mentioned, the kinds of errors that you're likely to make are going to be less because you'll start with a presumption of liberty and then figure out how it can be overridden by the usual problems that we have to face, of which coercion, duress, misinformation, fraud, and monopoly are the major ones. And so if you start looking at regulation that work in those areas, and not otherwise, you'll do good. So let me just give you an example now, actually two. One of them was in 
the case itself, there was the famous Midkiff case, which had just come down in 1984, in which the Supreme Court said it was perfectly okay uh, for the state to condemn uh, a certain fee symbols owned by uh, a large family, the Kamehameha family, and just give it to the tenants so long as the tenants were prepared to put up the money in the state treasury. And the question was whether or not these transfers from A to B were for a public use. And the Supreme Court said, well, it's conceivable that we'll have some particular public benefit, and so therefore we'll allow it. And most people, in effect, when they looked at that, kind of had their eyebrows raised. Wait a second, how could there be anything more private than a situation where you take a reversionary interest that is the uh, the ownership of the property at the expiration of the lease and give it to the tenant. Uh, the state condemns it, but only after it gets a deposit from the tenant to cover the cost. Well, at that time, it didn't have much of a residence. But when you got to the Kilo case in 2005 and they did this to a single owner, hey, we're going to take your property away because we want to have some economic development. The whole house started to come down. And if you remember, the court was challenged uh, for its unpardonable judicial activism in this area. The activism consists in their willingness, utter unwillingness to intervene where there seemed to be a perfect constitutional uh, violation. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing I think that's extremely important is uh, if you look at most of the really dangerous New Deal legislation that has persisted, much of it had been struck down during the height of the uh, classical liberal period, the Lochner era. Um, and so what you saw was a reversal of opinion, and in two areas, this was the consequence. Uh, you create the National Labor Relations Act, and what you do is you empower union monopolies and create a wholly unstable kind of environment, which is then followed by massive strikes, disruptions, and so forth. And then on the other side, what you do is you create agricultural cartels, which have a measurable negative impact on the welfare of people who have to pay higher prices in order to get lower foods. And it was those two things that drove the transformation of the Commerce Clause in Jones and Lachlan in 1937 and in Wicked and Filburn in 1942. Uh, what they do is they create crazy jurisprudence in order to allow these monopolization systems to go. And state monopolies are much worse than private monopolies because it's much harder to break them down. And then the Supreme Court compounded the felony in a case called Parker and Brown in 1943 when it says, oh, the Raisin Cartel in California, that's great. Because it's not just private, this is backed by the government. And what you do is you raise prices in an area where the state of California has a dominant position and impose huge social losses on people throughout the country. I don't think these are particularly close cases one way or another. The contract or the competition monopoly uh, contrast is as stark as you can imagine. And so just at the time that Scalia was doing his talk and I was giving my speech, I was in the last stages of putting out my takings book, which came out in 1985. Um, and, you know, it's been 35 years and I have to tell you, it's certainly not a book of judicial restraint, but it's not one that I've decided to, shall we say, a lament 35 years after its, uh, after its completion. Well, let me get back to the, the, the crux of the argument in your article. You said, as you said just a moment ago, that Scalia was, was criticizing one side of a, of a two-sided problem. He was criticizing judicial overreach, but he wasn't thinking about congressional or legislative overreach. And you say, you say at one point, the constitutionality of legislation – restricting economic liberties, cannot be decided solely by appealing to an, in, an initial presumption in favor of judicial restraint. Instead, the imperfections of the judicial system must be matched with the imperfections of the political branches of government. Now, that makes sense to me, but I ask myself, does the, I mean, you're basically asking for the, the courts and the 
legislature's imperfections to be put on a level playing field against one another to try to balance them out. What, do, but does our Constitution really put them on a level playing field? Doesn't our Constitution, which is, after all, a Republican Constitution, one that's ultimately accountable to the people, doesn't it tip the balance in favor of legislative sort of legislative power and the first branch? I mean, you say we, we can't just sort of go with a presumption in favor of judicial restraint, but what if the Constitution itself has that presumption? I mean, if it were clearer in the Constitution, then would you be in favor of a presumption of judicial restraint? Is this just a question of the Constitution not clearly supporting that presumption, or are you against that presumption uh, in just altogether in principle? Uh, I would put it in the following way. Um, I do not think in the abstract you should have a presumption one way or another. Uh, but when you're looking at the Constitution, you have to take into account with equal merits the uh, empowerment provisions for the president and for the legislature. But you also have to take into account the various limitations that are put on that power, both in the original Constitution and in the Bill of Rights. Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation is not a narrow command. Uh, it refers to all um, property whatever kind of private property, it's land, it's chattels, it's animals, it's intellectual properties of one kind or another. <clears throat> Taking is a pretty capacious verb. And then, you know, compensation is required, public use. You've got to explicate them all. <clears throat> so then when I wrote my takings book and declared around page 281, oh, by the way, the New Deal is unconstitutional. I did that as actually as a strict textualist argument. Um, I said, this is the happy circumstance. If I were trying to put together a completely ideal constitution, uh, that's the one substance provision that I would have, with the caveat always added in to limit the scope of this text, limit the scope of this text, that you have to take into account police power regulations. And so I did not see the legitimacy crisis associated with this. Rather, I saw the legitimacy crisis associated with people who essentially use the presumption of judicial restraint to ignore what's going on. So to give you but one illustration, we know that private property is a pretty capacious institution. It gives you the right to acquire possession, to exclude others, to use the property, to develop the property, and to trade the property. Uh, to say constitutionally that the notion of private property is associated only with the right to exclude, but does not include any use rights or any development rights or any transfer rights, that is absolutely anti-textual. And that is essentially the major part of modern constitutional law. It's the synthesis that you reach so as to allow the government to regulate all sorts of economic activities without forcibly throwing people off of the land. I think that's textually wrong, and I think it's politically illegitimate. So I never felt, when I wrote the takings book, that I was forced to make a choice between these two modes of interpretation. I said I could live with this constitution. This is not the Soviet constitution, where everybody has a positive right to housing and nobody gets a house. Everybody has a positive right to health care and nobody gets health care. And all the other kind of positive rights situations where it's easy to declare a right and impossible to fund it. Ours is a much more limited constitution. You get market opportunities. You don't get government subsidies. Now, it is ironic, I suppose, that after that debate, not long, I mean, in the years after that debate, Justice Scalia came your way on issues of takings, if I remember correctly. No, he was a leading figure on the sort of the, the reemergence of judicial protections against takings, including regulatory takings and so on. So in that sense, I suppose you won the debate. Uh, it, it, it's kind of complicated. 
Um, I actually wrote a long piece for some British museum going into all of his takings cases. And, and what happened is I think in many cases he had very good instincts and, inst and, and, and intuitions. But the difference between Scalia and myself is how we come to the interaction between public and private law. His entire career was on the public side of the divide. Um, he was a judge. Before that, he was, he was an OLC, I think the Office of Legal Counsel. He had always been a kind of a public man. Me, I just a plain old law professor, and I did not start out as a constitutional professor. Indeed, I have to make the confession, when I wrote the takings book, I had never taught a course in constitutional law. Um, I started out as a property contracts and torts lawyer. And so I started looking at this stuff, and I said, wait a second, there are two sets of books here. Everything I know about the interaction between one person and another seems to be violated when you start looking at this stuff from a constitutional perspective. And so when you start looking at the various kinds of cases that Scalia talked about, he generally had the right instincts, but he almost always had the wrong mechanics because he wasn't a strong enough private lawyer to understand the way in which this worked. Let me just give you one illustration of a very nice case, which he got right on the outcome, but wrong, I think, on the reasoning. There's a case called Stop the Beach Renourishment. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a very intelligent Notice the word I use, intelligent environmental statute. Uh, what you do when you go off the coast of Florida and a bunch of other places is you have a rapidly shifting beach and you get a lot of storms. And it turns out that the houses are located relatively close to the beach. And the question is, how do you protect them? Well, one thing you could try to do is to put up individual breakwaters, but the water will just go around the breakwaters and the whole thing will be swamped. And so what they decided to do was to make the following deal. Everybody had to allow the breakwater to go in front of their land so the protection was there. There were no gaps in the system. They then provided a way in which it turned out that the uh, wall when it was put there meant that private property, which was on the far side of the wall, would be subject to a public easement so people could walk over it. That's a taking. But on the other hand, uh, they agreed to preserve your view rights on the one hand, your access to water on the other. And so uh, the way in which I analyze this case is it's a perfect illustration of a taking. Uh, the easement has indeed been taken. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the police power justifications are very strong because it requires the collective action of everybody in order to make sure that the water is kept at bay. And in addition, all of the people in question um, got compensation from the fact that they got only not, the, not only the protection, but the, the protection also of their access rights and their view rights. It's very hard to figure out why people ought to get money when a system of legislation leaves them better off than they were before, which as a first approximation is true. Scalia gets to the right results, but he doesn't get to it by the analysis that I gave. What he decided is that there was no taking. And the way in which he did this was to go back to some 1927 case from Florida. And he said, if you drain an entire lake, uh, the people who are on the shore don't get any compensation. That's absolutely crazy. It turns out that a riparian is entitled to a river, and a diversion of a river by a private party is the quintessential water law tort. And if it's done by the government, it's a take. But once he says that you don't have any rights to the access and so forth, he says, well, the reason, in effect, that this regulation is good is that the government hasn't taken anything at all. And then he thinks about it a little bit further. He says, so it looks as though since the government hasn't taken anything, you could build a skyscraper right there on the water in front of you. He <laughs> says, oh, that seems to be counterintuitive, he said. Uh -huh. 
But he doesn't explain why. And so the mistake he made is a very common one, and it's one that he made all the time, is if you're a good common law pleader, you think about prima facie cases, excuses, and justifications, and you have to have a theory that covers all of them. Scalia hated the idea of implied justifications, was very uneasy about the police power. So to him, it was either an on-off switch. It was a taking or it wasn't the taking. And he had a lot of trouble in dealing with justified takings. And that mistake essentially went through all of his takings position. So you are absolutely right to say that he was far better than the Justice Brennans of this world who never thought there was an issue at all. Uh, but the lost opportunity of Scopely, it was clear, is that he got the right results, but he didn't rationalize the law that made possible its future application in a coherent fashion. Uh, that is what I think is the difference. So yes, I think I did persuade him Indeed, uh, when he did the Lucas decision, not the Lucas decision, oh my God, uh, the California Coastal Commission's decision um, in, in 1987, um, he constantly struggled over the unconstitutional conditions condition. And he, you know, his two clerks at that time were Gary Lawson and Lee Lieberman Otis, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, he... Well, he did a pretty good job on it, but unconstitutional conditions is a really tough issue to get right. And the reason he had so much trouble with it is like Justice Roberts later on, he keeps on thinking of this as the use of force, coercion, when in fact it's the use of monopoly power, uh, the exclusive power of the state to give and not to give licenses. And monopoly arrangements are governed by fundamentally different rules than those which had to do with the restraint and the use of physical force. Well, let's move back uh, from the past to the present, from Judge Scalia to mm -hmm. Senator Whitehouse. God again, help us, yeah. <laughs> again, the last line uh, in the brief uh, where he warns that the court, if they don't do what, you know, if, if, he, if the court doesn't do what the senators want it to do, then there's the risk that the court will need to be restructured, as he, as he put it, restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics. Obviously, he's alluding to the threat of court packing. Um, now, set aside the slippery slope issue, that if one side, the Republicans or the Democrats, were ever to try to actually pack the court, it would radically destabilize everything, you'd have tit for tat, it would just totally explode. I think that's obvious, and it's obvious even to, surely it's obvious even to uh, Senator Whitehouse. Um, there's an old, there's a old Woody Guthrie line, something about uh, the, the soup was so thin, even a politician could see through it. Um, he might have been talking about uh, Senator Whitehouse. But setting that aside, let's talk about, just briefly, we'll wrap up with a quick chat about the structure of the court. There's been proposals, including proposals, I believe, by our friend uh, Stephen Calabresi to change the tenure of Supreme Court justices or to change, uh, maybe to cycle justices in and out of the court. What do you think of these? What do you think about just, is there any principal justification for adding seats to the court? It wasn't originally nine justices. It was originally six. It's been as large as 10. Is there any principled argument for either adding seats to the court or do you think there's a, there's a, a strong argument for changing the tenure of justices? Well, I think they're two separate issues. Right. On, on one of them, I think we keep to the status quo. Nine has been a stable number since the Civil War, I think it was. Uh, to start moving in either direction leads you to the question of which direction do you want to move in and why. And I think that's the kind of political debate that is going to be utterly impossible to solve. 
And so I'm quite adamant you leave the number exactly where it is. And if any justice wants or president wants to pack the court, which you can do arguably under the Constitution, which only refers to one Supreme Court, uh, that's going to be a sign of political mayhem. And so I would be deeply opposed to this no matter who did it. On the terms of the tenure of judges, I think the one of the great constitutional blunders uh, was that these guys serve for life, um, doing good behavior, as it were. I think it's a terrible situation when you have judges who are in their 80s making these key decisions. Um, I think you need to have new blood come on the court on a regular basis. I think if you're fighting over somebody who's going to be on the court for 35 years, it's going to be a different battle than if we're a stronger situation. I think it requires a constitutional amendment, but the one I'm in favor of is essentially says that with transitional provisions that you have to work through, uh, that uh, justice gets appointed for an 18-year term. Uh, I'm actually in favor of that for lower court judges, but it doesn't seem to matter so much given the fact that there's so few, so many of them that their powers are very, very much diminished relative to the Supreme Court. Uh, but the, the current situation of keeping people on forever, I think, creates a really dangerous type of situation, and I would like to see it changed. Um, I don't know any other way to change it other than through a constitutional amendment some years ago. Uh, people said what we'll do is Paul Carrington, I think, uh, was one of the authors, uh, have a situation where you have a Supreme Court of 15 people and the oldest nine, oldest six in terms of seniority have to sit aside unless the others recuse themselves, at which point they go back. I don't believe you're having one Supreme Court if you can choose from that a bunch of panels. And I think that would be extremely crazy uh, to have, say, a branch of 15 and then God knows which group you're going to get for a particular case is going to depend on the nine that get chosen. Uh, the coherence that's going to follow from that would be minimal. And so I would not be in favor of that. Oddly enough, I do agree with you on one thing, Adam. I think there is so Odd much. Oddly enough, even. Yes. Well, I mean, especially oddly. Is that <laughs> the, the, the problem? There, there's so many uh, different methodologies that people want to bring with respect to Supreme Court decisions. Uh, and it's a complete welter of confusion that that intellectual substrate tends to undermine the legitimacy of the court uh, because you don't even see any recognition of the fact that the precedents are against you. I will follow them. What you see is people saying, hey, the precedent's against me, but you just wait. When I get my five majority, all these precedents that are against me are going to be overturned. Um, the Democrats, for example, just to take one thing, it's quite clear if they get five votes, all of the incursions on the Commerce Clause with a modest, modest intention of trying to limit its scope, they're toast. They're gone. We will be back to the New Deal Constitution with an unlimited constitutional power under the Commerce Clause. And that, of course, means this thing is very unsettling. And on the other side, we could do the same thing to Roe v. Wade. If the Republicans got five votes, would they want to overturn that? I think it's much less likely that you'll see Roe go than the Commerce Clause litigation uh, because we are in a position which is relatively comfortable. A majority of people in the United States believe that abortion is legally permissible but morally undesirable, and that's sort of where we stand today. Um, on these issues, I'm more of a conservative than you might think. I think when there's been a long-term consensus of a given position, uh, the only time I want to overturn it is if I think that there's some serious maladjustments that have to be corrected. 
That's why it is I'm so insistent upon the economic liberties point, because you look at the mess that takes place with California housing and New York rent control and all the agricultural messes that have taken place. You can see that there are many places in which the current monopolistic schemes put into place by New Deal and post-New Deal statutes are bursting apart at the seams. I think there's only so much long-term stability we can hope for in the law. Like you said, of course, mm. times change, uh, parties, the party in power changes, the court changes. I can't remember who it was that maybe it was William F. Buckley or somebody said, uh, actually, I'm sure it wasn't him who originally said it, but anyway, somebody said, no, no, no cause is permanently lost because no cause is permanently gained. Um, in the long run, we have to constantly fight and refight to win and preserve and, and win over again um, the, the gains we have in, in law and so on. But if that's the case, then isn't there something to be said for Chief Justice Roberts's approach uh, to try to seek a broad consensus in a case where possible, you know, preferring, say, a 7-2 to two decision or even a 9-0 decision? <coughs> Over a five over a five four decision, when you can get more buy in from both sides. I mean, you don't get the sort of the grand sweeping decisions in those cases, but at least you get more stable adjustments or more stable adjustments that might maintain some stability in law for a, a longer period of time. Isn't there something to be said for Chief Justice Roberts's approach? There's something to be said for it. And there's something to be said against it. That's why I say, I mean, let me put it this way. I think the idea that you can set up a set of institutions day one and hope that they'll be on autopilot through all the vicissitudes of the next hundred years is an idle hope. Uh, the advantage of getting a 7-2-9-0 decision is you get a broader consensus. The disadvantage is you get less instruction on what's to be done in the next case. So you buy a short-term piece and you may get long-term difficulties. I have no idea what the optimal level of generality is as a universal matter. So I'm just going to end on this note because I think we've probably run our course, yeah. uh, which is uh, in the end, uh, the only thing that will give us a chance to get the outcomes right on the substantive issues is that we have a serious engagement on the sort of the intellectual basis and that everybody has to understand the trade-offs that are involved in all the positions that are put forward. And once you use the word trade-off to describe what's going on, you become a little bit less assertive in the way it goes. So to go back to uh, Senator Whitehouse's statement, one of the reasons why he was so obnoxious on the constitutional issues is that he was utterly unaware of the difficulties that arise in trying to figure out the right program for gun control. And if you're not going to be certain on the gun control issue, you're not going to be able to write a kind of piece of dogmatic stupidity uh, of which that man is all too eminently capable. Well, Richard, it's always a pleasure to have these conversations. Uh, very thankful to our listeners, our friends, for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us, leave a review, and check out the Hoover Institution's other podcasts. Until next time, this is Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.